This week, we're in Southern California with seven-time X Games medalist Ryan Sheckler, who's been in the public eye ever since he became the youngest ever to win an X Games medal in skateboarding. He also landed his own MTV reality show as a teenager, and with the young fame came a party-intense lifestyle. It was like a lawless time <laughs> in, in my life being in that house. It was crazy. Sheckler's now married and expecting his first child in the spring. But when we talked in 2021, he opened up about a newfound perspective. Over this last year, you know, I am a born again Christian. You know, I, I've always been a believer, um, but I wasn't following the practices. Plus, he looks back on a scary incident with the stalker. They found a bunch of stuff in his backpack that were, you know, big old hunting knife and prescription pills and things of that nature that just like, you never know what someone's capable of, man. And discusses his road to recovery from addiction. I wanted to stop partying. I wanted to stop drinking. And I couldn't do it, man. But we start things off by going back to the moment that propelled Sheckler into the national spotlight, winning X Games gold at just 13 years old. Why did Tony Hawk come to your birthday party when you were six? <laughs> because we wanted Tony Hawk. My dad somehow managed to get, you know, in touch with him via email and uh, invited him. And Tony said that he would come just as long as he got chocolate cake. <laughs> and dude, you know, no parents fee. Like, I think my, my mom and dad maybe gave him a couple hundred bucks, you know? I knew, dude, from a super young age that like, skating was my calling. This is what I was supposed to do. Like, you know, Tony coming to my party was just like, all right, this is it. What's a more vivid memory for you uh, winning X Games gold at 13 or 18? Um, more vivid was the first one, you know? I think the first one. 13 was, was crazy. And, you know, I just remember, like, I think I was, like, chewing on the metal. I had my hands up, and I, like, did this face, like, because I really just didn't know what happened. Yeah. You know? And that that would be the like defining moment for the start of my career as a professional skateboarder. Out of the, I think, four or five contests that were professional contests of my 13 year, which was 2003, um, I won all of them. You know, and I was fresh on the scene, including X Games and Slam City Jam and all these things. And I had braces on. You know, like I, I didn't even know. I didn't even know what it. What I didn't know what happened. All of a sudden, these contracts are coming in, and for for real money. For real yeah, money, dude. Right. And they wanted me to travel, and obviously, those were part of my obligations was to travel and to be a part of, you know, the pro circuit. Seven, eight months out of the year, scattered, I was gone, and um, it was just hard, dude. I didn't have like I didn't have friends that were my age. All my friends were twenty and above. You know, I was a thirteen-year-old, and I'm still very moldable, and I want to. Thank God that I really wanted to just skate, you know? If my mind would have been elsewhere, you know, I probably would have gotten into some trouble um, at a young age and, and wouldn't be right here having this interview today. You know, I, I stayed very focused. I had very strong family morals and my mom and my dad were very, very strong, opinionated on, <clears throat> if you're going on the road, we're trusting you. We're putting trust in you. and. I never wanted to break that trust, so I never, you know, I never drank, I never smoked when I was when I was young on the road. Like that wasn't a thing. Uh, it wasn't even allowed. It wasn't even a thought. I just wanted to skate, and I actually got frustrated a lot of these trips because, as a little kid, I wake up at eight o'clock and I'm ready to go skate. And these guys had partied all night, 
you know, and they're not rolling out of bed or rolling into the van until one o'clock. So I'm like, well, I guess it's a perfect time for me to do homework, you know? So like I would just do schoolwork and it actually gave me a really bad taste of like, man, partying, like, this just takes you away. This just takes you away from skating. Why are these guys doing this? So um, it was actually easy for me to, to not partake in any of that until later on. What made you realize just that lifestyle at that age in terms of traveling for that long was too much? I just miss my family, dude. I miss my friends. I wanted to be home. And um, that wasn't an option. And so you eventually decided to go to a normal high school, but I understand <laughs> yeah. that it, it was ended up being pretty challenging it for was your super career. Bro, it was super challenging. Um, but at that point, I had already been to the point where I was like, I am going to freshman year of high school, period. You know, I have to go feel what it's like to be at school. And obviously, once I was halfway through the year, I was like, get me on the road. Like this, you know, I'm, I'm over this. But um, big thing in my family is finish what you start. And you learned wrestling, too. Like wrestling taught me how to fall better on my skateboard, which a lot of people don't realize that, like, yeah, if you're a great skateboarder, that's rad. But like, you really need to learn how to fall from huge obstacles or, you know, those millisecond where you hit a rock and you, you're going to fall instead of like, you know, putting your arms out, which trust me, I've put my arms out and I've learned the hard way. You know, I broke my elbows eight or nine times, like total. And that's from learning, like falling wrong, you know? So wrestling taught me how to like, oh, tuck and roll, always tuck and roll. And um, that was a huge, huge aspect of my life still to, to this day. Do you feel like it was as good of an educational experience as you wish you would have had? No, I don't, but I don't think I wish I had a different, uh -huh. you know, education. Like my education was in the streets and traveling the world as a young kid. What was the moment you realized you could compete professionally? That I could compete com uh, professionally? Like I remember distinctly a conversation of, you know, we were all talking about going pro and they're like, when do you think you're going to go pro? And like from that age, I might've been eight or nine. I was like, you know, 21, I think 21 is a good age to go pro. That means I'll put enough time in, you know, like I think it's going to take me that long to turn pro because these guys are good. And then when it happened at 13, it was like, I still had that 21 in my mind, you know, like I had no idea. And how did you prepare for that challenge? I couldn't prepare. I didn't have anyone to base it off of. I literally didn't. I didn't know anyone in skateboarding that had gone pro that young. I didn't think I was going to turn pro at 13, dude. Like, I was literally, like, I was just doing what I was doing. There was, it was, like, no pressure. It was, like, fun. Skating was so fun. I was learning tricks every week. Whatever I put my mind to to learn, I was learning it. And then I was, like, militant about it. I learned one trick. I tried to do it 100 times just to get it ingrained in the system and like we would goof around like all my neighbors were older than me four or five years older than me i just was stoked to be able to skate with the dudes that i looked up to in skateboarding i just wanted to be in the same park with those dudes and like belong there all of a sudden you know your fame really gets put into overdrive but um there were some scary moments too when do you want to start with uh, your little brother Kane and the stalker? Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, that's a that's a heavy story. The guy that was the stalker was, you know, mentally ill. He was mentally ill, and 
Um, he thought that he was having a relationship with a little child, with Cain. Uh, we became aware of this guy because he was leaving presents in my mom's backyard. I had already moved out at this point. Um, so it must have been right when I was 18, 19. My mom would leave to go run errands, whatever. And they would come home and, you know, there'd be a brand new Razor scooter in the backyard. That no one knew how I got there. And then there was like a, a, a booklet, a note booklet of, you know, weird drawings of like this guy and Kane like holding hands and, you know, him professing his love for my little brother. And, um, you know, it was everyone's kind of on edge because we didn't know where this guy was. And, you know, he ended up, uh, my mom's house is backed up against, you know, a big, big mountain hill. And uh, he was camping out. He was camping out above the house, like behind the house in the bushes. And there was one night in particular where my brother Shane was over at my house, my new house, and we were hanging out and my mom called me and she was very, uh, she sounded very distraught, you know, just like, I just don't feel comfortable without Shane being at the house. So Shane got back to my mom's house and, um, Shane was outside in the driveway and the guy popped out of the bushes and was calling my name. And Shane, being 16 or 17 years old with a 30-year-old man yelling Ryan at him, he was, he was scared and so he's like, no, I'm Shane, I'm Shane. You're that guy, you need to leave. And the guy didn't leave. And he was like, fine, I'm just gonna go to Ryan's house. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's where it, it went down. You know, Shane wasn't gonna let that happen. It didn't end up good for the guy, you know? He's alive, obviously, and um, his parents were very sorry that it had got to that point and that he had, you know, pretty much escaped from where he was supposed to be, somewhere in San Francisco or something like that, and took buses to get down to here and was infatuated with Kane. They found a bunch of stuff in his backpack that were, you know, big old hunting knife and prescription pills and things of that nature that just like, you never know what someone's capable of, man. Well, so the attention on you was increasing. Obviously, it's not just folks with mental health issues, but there was a, you know, an event in Australia, I think, another one in the US where the, the SWAT team had to be, be called, how, how strange was that? It's, it's all been strange, bro. We would have autograph signings at the mall and like, or at a skate shop, <laughs> dude. And six to 8,000 people would show up, you know? And we had to have cop escorts to the thing. It was like, I'm being escorted by police, like motorcade to get to an autograph signing as a 17 and 18 year old, you know? It was unreal. And then I would have to leave and then people would start fighting. And then, you know, police departments show up and helicopters are showing up telling people to disperse like it's like <laughs> a riot or something. And yeah. dude, it was like overwhelming. It was overwhelming. I will not lie. It wasn't like, oh, cool, look at me. It was like, whoa, like this is, this is gnarly. You know, this is too gnarly. So the show, The Life of Ryan, went for three seasons. Uh, I think you stopped midway through the third yeah. season, but you started to 
you started to sour on it at some point. You you told the story before, but that how they had you break up with your girlfriends a couple of occasions yeah, on, on camera. Yeah, you know this, and that was like that was definitely the last straws for me. It was like because that's already a very intimate piece of your life that you don't want really people to know about or to see. But what they don't show you is like I had to show up. I showed up at her house early before filming, explained what was going on because we were both ready to split anyway. So it was like, okay, let's just do it this way. So we break up once and then cameras are on. We break up again, cut. Now the mood's really awkward. And then, you know, they come over to me and they're like, hey, we, that wasn't enough. We need, we need to do it again. And so that's where the show became acting. And it became like this thing where it was like, this is not what we signed up for. And this is not what it started out as. Like, it broke my heart, dude. It broke my heart and it like, I don't know, it borderline traumatized me. I didn't get into a relationship after the show until I was 25 years old. Why? Because I didn't want to have to go through a breakup again. Well, and so what, what about it uh, got to you so much? Um, that I'm a very emotional person. You know, I can put on a very hard and tough exterior and, you know, my, my job as a skateboarder and my life, my career, you know, it's like hitting the ground and bouncing off concrete and like breaking bones. And, you know, that can be looked at as like, you know, a tough, tough career. But at the end of the day, dude, I have a heart, man. And I have very strong emotions and I do not like hurting people's feelings. I do not. And so to blatantly have to hurt people's feelings over and over again, for the sake of television, for ratings, literally, uh, nah, it rocked me. My nickname became Crying Ryan, you know? Which I thought was funny at first until it wasn't, you know? They were making fun of me for crying about hearing that my parents were gonna get divorced and I heard about it on camera, you know? That was the first time I heard about it. Everything I care about is my family and I'm super emotional about it. And so I cried and I held on to my brother. And then it was just like, Ryan can't find a chill girl. You know, Ryan cries on TV. To what extent looking back now, do you think it was just jealousy? Oh, I know now, yeah. for sure. It was all jealousy. But, but that played into why you decided to stop the show. Yeah, too, right? because also I was a teenager and I had an ego. Yeah. And I was easily frustrated and my feelings were easily hurt because of my ego. It was deflating to my ego to have someone out there saying that I was crying right. So I had to be extra tough. You know, I had to be extra tough and not put up with anything and try to get into, you know, get into trouble to show people that I was, you know, tough. And yet any one of them would have died to have that show in, in, in that platform and the audience, all the uh, <laughs> yeah, bro. attention is brought. You, you, any part of you now wish you'd continued with it? Um, no, it served its purpose. It was, it was done how it was supposed to be done. I learned the lessons I was supposed to learn from doing it. Yeah, hey, I wouldn't take it back either. Bro, I was 17 years old, you know? I was a kid. Right. I was a kid that got an incredible opportunity, was in a very interesting part of my career where it was just seemed to be going up and up and up and I figured this was the next best step like I didn't know any better it was it was beyond my wildest like conception of what it could have been 
How did you get to know Machine Gun Kelly and Clay Thompson? Um, Kells, I met I met Colson when I was uh, when he was 19. Um, I met him at an after party for X Games um, after I had won gold, and we right away, right away became homies. Like immediately, it was insane. He was a fan of skateboarding. I was a fan of music, and then we just became friends. And then it almost became kind of like this like mentor thing where it was like he was super. He was a fan of like the show and like knew my career and and it was appealing to him where I was in my life and that's where he wanted to be. And so we connected on a deeper level of like just deeper conversations, you know? It's struggles that he goes through. It's struggles that I go through with, you know, I've, I've had this exact conversation with him many of times of like, dude, just be careful, you know? Like, be careful, make sure you, you're directing the narrative that you want people to see and like, make sure at the end of the day, everything you do is, because you feel it in your heart that you're not just trying to please this world, man, because that's, that's the easiest way and that's the fastest way to kind of self-sabotage when you're not focused on, on who you are and what you believe in and you start believing in what people want you to believe in. And both of those guys, they were kind of coming to you for advice, right? In a sense, yeah. I mean, uh, definitely Kells was. Definitely Kells. Um, and then Clay... I've known Clay since high school. Like we've been close, but like really been able to give each other advice um, until like right before he got into the NBA. And I knew he was gonna get into the NBA. Yeah. I remember vividly, bro, we were in San Diego. We had just been, uh, we were going to go, we were gonna go out at night. We were gonna go to Flux. It used to be a, a club that we used to love to go to. And I brought Clay, and I remember, like, I paid for Clay's hotel room, paid for the car, like, paid for the night, you know, and I, I remember the next morning we were talking, I was like, Clay, you're about to hit it big, bro. Like, you're about to hit it big. Like, soon, you're going to be taking us out. I was like, I even told him, like, you're going to be a hundred millionaire, bro. I know it. Like, I can feel it. Like, you're the guy, you know? And then later that year, he got drafted to the NBA. And then obviously over the years got the big contract and we'll still talk about it today. Like we'll have poker oh, night. Really? Oh yeah, we'll have poker night. And I'm like, you remember what I told you? He's like, bro, you called everything. You called everything. And I could just see how hard he worked. It was, it was the work he was putting in. It was inevitable, bro, that he was gonna be something big in the NBA. I couldn't have predicted it was gonna be who he is now, you know, like he's massive. Um, but we really related over the injuries, bro. That ACL injury that he had was like the first time he had ever had a bad injury. He was hitting me up and he was like, man, this is gnarly. This is what you've gone through. I'm like, yeah, dude, like stay focused, stay centered, like do the physical therapy, like do the work to get back. Don't come back early. Don't come back early. Tell about your old uh, house, because I understand you had a ton of talent come through there just in terms of people that went on to have a, a lot of success. It was nuts, dude. We had like, I think my 20th birthday, um, <laughs> had Vanilla Ice play Ice Ice Baby in my you, living room. You hired him to perform? No, he right? just came. Oh, he just came. Okay. He just came to the party. Same party, like Barry Bonds was there, you know, like... Pastrana. Wait, 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 did I hear Barry Bonds was playing beer pong in your garage? In my garage, bro. Like, 
You know, and like we're playing beer pong on a ping pong table set up right next to a, a Ferrari that I had bought when I was 18. You know, it was like unbelievable. Travis Pastrana was driving a dirt bike through your kitchen? Not only the dirt bike, they were bringing the Harleys in through the house and doing burnouts. And <laughs> my neighbors literally thought my house was on fire because he sat at my front door burning out this Harley to the point where it filled my whole house with smoke and we had to open the windows. And it literally looked like smoke, like fire smoke was bellowing out of my house. And, um, and you were cool with this at the time. Yeah, man. Like Pastrana, doing burnouts in my house? Like, fine, that's great. Like I had a great house cleaner at the time who's still my house cleaner to this day, you know? Like scrubbing off rubber marks on the, you know, on the tile, but it was like a lawless time <laughs> in, in my life being in that house, it was crazy. And like, I, I, I was so caught up in material things, you know, at that age, cause I didn't know any better, you know? I didn't know any better, dude. My, my story was like very unique, you know? It was very unique and very unrelatable to anyone else that was 18 or 19 or 20 at that time that was around me. Um, and that's why I say, dude, it was, it was a super fun time. It was a super interesting time. It was a time full of sin and you know, I, I lived I lived through it, but now I'm at a point where it's like, none of that is important. Yeah, I want to throw out a couple moments and just get what comes to mind. The first being the Costco gap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. things scary, bro. Super scary. I had heard some stories about like people trying to do it and were not able to do it. And um, right then and there, that was a challenge for me. It was like, well, if no one else can do it, like maybe I'm the exception. I don't know why I thought that way, but I was like, Maybe it's me. And then I showed up there and I knew I could do it. I instantly knew I could do it. And it ended up being one of the biggest kickflips um, in skateboarding to this day, you know? But rolling away from that, that's why I'm a skateboarder. Because that feeling is indescribable. It's euphoria. How about the time the cops and fire trucks came because somebody, I think, called saying this guy's gonna jump to his death? Yeah, Taiwan. <clears throat> Taiwan on a recent trip. Um, just working on a Red Bull project. And I told our tour guide out there, where's a spot nobody skates? That's like yours, like a spot that you think would be the next level. And he's like, oh, I've taken a lot of people here. No one even, no one even looks at it. I'm like, oh, let me see it. It was like a 10 foot vertical drop into about a 25 foot transition, but it's at the bottom of this underpass. So it's the, the ground looked so far away and I was in a trance pretty much. That's why the people called. It's cause I like, I must've looked crazy. I don't know, <laughs> but I was standing up there and I had my board and I like just jumped down and just started walking up the center aisle and heard all these like sirens coming and <laughs> cop cars and cops on bikes and uh, ambulance and fire trucks. And they just surrounded me, dude. Like surrounding me and I can't understand what they're talking about. And I have like eight people holding on to me, like grabbing me and trying to talk to me and trying to take me to the ambulance. And uh, <laughs> there was one guy that came up on a moped, just a civilian. He's like, hey, I'm sorry. You know, kind of broken English. I'm sorry, I thought you were gonna kill yourself. I'm like, bro, with eight cameramen and like a whole crew right here, like no one stopped. Come on, man, like put two and two together. But in Taiwan, skating like that, it's not really seen, yeah. you know, and it's not really a thing. Um, 
So I totally understand. And then they told us like, do not ever come back. You will go to jail. I was like, there's no way I'm going back to the United States without doing this. And my filmer and my photographer could tell that like this thing was eating me alive. Like it was eating me alive. And they're like, hey, let's just go with a small crew and let's go back. I said, absolutely. I jumped up on the wall, set my board down, took a deep breath, and then just sent it and rolled away. How do you feel about skating in the Olympics? <laughs> Dude, I think it's cool, man. Like if a kid that's never skateboarded is watching the Olympics and sees skateboarding and is like, what? Skateboarding's in the Olympics and decides to become a skateboarder. If only one kid does that, then it's a success. Dude, there's gonna be millions of kids that become like savage skateboarders because of the Olympics. How would you best explain the role your mom plays in your life? Um, everything, bro. She's everything to me. She's, she's my mom, she's a manager, she's my best friend, she's someone I can call for anything. We talk about everything. Um, there's nothing off limits with my mom. I mean, dude, she's my best friend. It touches you now, even oh, talking about yeah, that. Yeah, bro. It's, what? I would just, some of the mistakes that I've made, you know, she's always showed me love and always showed me grace and always been the one I can trust. And like, if something's going on, I'm calling her first. What's a moment uh, where, you know, she gave the response that kind of made all the difference to you in terms of direction you ended up taking? I mean, dude, there's, there's so many, but like one that was like, the scariest moment for me was admitting that I had a problem with alcohol and that I needed help and I didn't know how to do it and I didn't know what it looked like and I didn't know who else to call and I only could call and talk to her about it. And I made that phone call when I was on a trip in Oslo, in Norway. Two days later, I was home and I was going to treatment to get help that I needed. And uh, it was the scariest day of my life, bro, to surrender. Um, it made me and her stronger. Um, I'll never forget getting dropped off at this place. And, like I just remember watching, watching her just drive out and turn right. And I was emotional, bro, I was a wreck. And like, it gives me chills. And like, right when she turned out of sight, I had this like overwhelming like warmth and like the spirit come over me that let me know, know I was in the right place. And then from that day, I was like, I was full, full on. I was full in, full into recovery. What made you realize you needed to go? Mm, I couldn't stop drinking. I just couldn't stop drinking. It was like, as in you wanted to, but I wanted to for sure, but I couldn't. You know, and I was like, okay, well, not today. Not to, uh, you know, okay, well, we had one. Okay, well, we'll have four or five and we'll, we'll try again tomorrow. And that just happened for a long time. What was your lowest point during that period? Um, during that period was just the, like, I, I was just the hope, hope, hopelessness, dude. I literally just, like, I wanted to, I wanted to stop partying. I wanted to stop drinking. 
And I couldn't do it, man. It was, you know, it was crazy. I, I had grown up with adults my whole life, you know, watching these guys on, on tour and, you know, from a young kid and then got a house when I was 18, on the dot, 18, you know, three-story, 5,000-square-foot home as an 18-year-old. My friends are still in high school. I was the only kid technically in high school that had a home, you know, my own home. And we didn't have adults in there telling us no ever, you know, and we learned how to, we learned how to party, really. Like we, we learned what we liked to drink. We learned how much we could drink and how much we could not drink. And there was really no supervision. And, um, you know, I turned 21 and now I can, legally drink, you know, and that's, that's interesting to me, intriguing. And I want to go, you know, now I want to go to bars and I want to, you know, go to the club without having to like look over my shoulder to see if like the owner shows up to get me out of there. You know, it was like, it was all (laughs) sketchy and, um, it just turned into like a lifestyle, turned into a lifestyle where it was like, we go on trips and I'm looking at skate photos and then the next page over I'm looking at what clubs are there you know and it just kind of became hand in hand and um yeah man I mean 2016 I'm I'm in Oslo and this was the breaking point obviously of this and what made it that way though what made Oslo the breaking point for me was that out of my whole life, the one thing that I have had this crazy, intense passion for, which is skateboarding and competing. I'm in Oslo and I want nothing to do with skateboarding. I don't want to be a skateboarder. I don't want to be a competitor. I don't even want to skate anymore. I want to just go take the money I've made, get off the map and go party. I just want to like, kind of wanted to end it, you know? Not suicidal, but like, I didn't want to be in the public's eye anymore at all. Um, at, uh, around that time, you said, I never took time to care about myself because what I thought made me happy was taking care of other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, it was an aggressive form of like being of service. And, and I look at it now, and I was only taking care of other people and making sure other people were happy was because I was unhappy. And so, to like fill that little void in myself without actually having to address what it was, which was alcohol and just like lack of identity. I didn't know really who I was or what I really believed in. I kind of was just going along for the ride of like, no, this is what people say I am. So I'll be this guy, you know, like I would take care of everybody else's problems just to fix a little piece, just for a little glimpse of like, ah, that felt good. Okay, cool. And then, it never lasted because I was never addressing that it was my ego. It was, what do you believe in, dude? Like, what, what do you stand for? You know, what, what do you want people to know you as? What do you want to be remembered as? And like, still to this day, I want to be remembered as a person that, that helped others. What did Michael Phelps say when he called? That he had been through a similar situation and that he knew exactly what I was feeling and he had been there and he could relate. And then when I got Phelps calling me, taking the time out of his day to give me hope, experience, strength, I was like, bro, all right, I can do it. 
I can do this. And like my family and my core group of friends, you know, that have never been yes men, that have always called it straight. The reason I'm sober today, honestly, is they told me, hey, we see there's a problem. You cannot control this. Like, I'm like, you're right. I trust you. You're right. That moment you started drinking again, and I guess COVID comes, and yeah. uh, your roommate Danny's looking at the bottle of Jack Daniels in the morning and seeing more and more out of it than, you know, should be gone. Yeah, bro. I had this, like, vision of, like, oh, man, my 30th birthday. Like, you know, I had taken so much time off of drinking, you know, almost four years, that I was like, all right, maybe I got this. Maybe I can just drink normal. And I uh, gave it a go. And it turned out that's not, it's not in the cards for me. What happened? Um, nothing violent this time. Like nothing, nothing actually crazy happened, which thank God, you know, it was just the amount of drinking. It was. Wait, you said, did something violent happen before? I mean, there was, there was definitely fights at the house, you know, there was, it, we were young, you know, we were 18, we were still in high school, we were having other kids from other high schools come over un, uninvited and, okay. it, you know, things yeah. were popping off and whatever, it's high school stuff, yeah. you know. Um, um, and no, like violent, you know, I, it's not violent, but it's like, I love the sound, <laughs> still love the sound of, of breaking glass. I don't know, there's something like, there's something to it. It's weird, I know, but... <laughs> You know, it's, it's maybe because we broke so much of it that it just like, it's a sound I like. I don't know. Um, none of that happened. You know, it was just this thing where I, I started uh, started being sneaky. I was being sneaky. You know, I would be home alone and, you know, not want to drink. And, you know, it, it started on one of my surf trips that I go on yearly where it's like the best time for me. 14 days of just like surf, beach, good food, friends. It's the best. And I decided to drink before that trip. I don't know why. I had no like barrier. Like I had no memory of like the pain that drinking had put me through. Like I was a dry alcoholic. You know, I didn't go, I didn't have a program. I wasn't running, you know, a solid 12 step program at all. And so I had no defense to it. And I just started drinking, and it ended up taking me out for like f five months. And you get home one day from a, a workout, and what happens? Uh, the, second, <laughs> the second intervention I've ever had, um, and the last one, you know. I had told my mom before that, you know, a couple days before that, like, hey, I think I'm, uh, I'm going to need another round of, um, of treatment. I don't know if I can do this on my own. And boom, two days later, like clockwork, everyone's at my house. And you weren't happy initially? No, no, no. No, I wasn't psyched at all. I wasn't psyched at all. You know, and I, I went straight into defense mode and I'm, you know, pointing out flaws of a few people that were in the room and how can you judge me when, you know, you do this and blah, blah, blah. And then like, I just took a deep breath and listened, shut up and I listened to the concerns and then I agreed with the concerns. And then I agreed that I had a problem. And I agreed to help. And I remember saying, I'm like, let me guess, I'm going today. And they're like, yeah, go pack a bag. I was like, all right. 
all right, you know, thank you. I'm like, all right, I'll go. There have been stories in the, the skating industry about, you know, addiction and, and mental health. Do you think there's enough attention and kind of awareness of that? So I think now, right now, it's starting to get a lot more traction and being talked about a lot more how important the health and wellness side of life is. Um, speaking from experience, from not taking care of my body and maybe skating hungover, like I've broke over 10 bones, way more than 10 bones, you know? A lot of those could have been avoided, for sure, if I would have been clear and on point, but I wasn't. And I thought I could have, you know, my cake and eat it too, like go party all night and then wake up and go skate all day. Like, it doesn't work that way. For me, it didn't work. You know, and I had to learn the hard way. When you got to give yourself a ton of credit too, not only for having the willpower to go th through all that, but then being willing to share it publicly. I take my ego out of it, you know? People are gonna take it how they're gonna take it. They're, they're gonna like it or they're not. And to me, at the end of the day, I'm not trying to appeal to anyone except for the Lord. All right, so I wanted to talk to you about religion. Why decide to make more of a time investment? Um, for me, honestly, bro, it is a matter of I've had a very fulfilled life. I've had a fulfilled life, and when I look at it, um, a lot of that fulfillment that I thought was, you know, pure fun w was sin, you know? And I, I look at it now, and I want to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And... You know, over this last year, you know, I am a born-again Christian. You know, I, I've always been a believer, um, but I wasn't following the practices. And that's not to say I wasn't a good person. You know, I always treated people with respect. I've always loved people, and I would give the shirt off my back to anyone. Um, but I wasn't in Scripture. I wasn't in the Bible. I wasn't really reading the stories and, and, and actually absorbing the lessons of the Bible. And... I wanted to change, dude. I just wanted to change. Something was calling at me, and I know now it was Jesus that just wants me to be on a different path. But, but why um, so important to you know have the, the daily readings and kind of t t take a deeper dive from that perspective? To be honest, man, the rapture. <laughs> I want to go up. I want to go up when Jesus comes down. You know, I want to go up right away. I don't want to be. I don't want to be stuck on Earth. You know. <clears throat> As a, as a non-believer. The book of Revelations for me has been pretty much the biggest eye-opener and anyone that has read it, you know, will understand that it's, uh, it talks about, you know, when Jesus is coming back and it talks about what happens if you're not a believer and you haven't acknowledged and surrendered to Christ. One of your goals is to read the entire Bible, right? Yeah, bro, of course. I think that's, um, you know, the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. Over this last year and, you know, really focused on my sobriety and, and everything that's going on, I have the mental capacity to soak it up. And I'm really in it because I want to be in it. I want to read the Bible daily. I'm drawn to it and, um, and that's my path, you know? That's the path I'm on right now and it's, it's a path for Christ. And, and I'm not ashamed of it, I'm stoked. All the tattoos. Yeah. Um, I, I think you started getting them after your dad got one, right? <laughs> yeah. I remember him, he got the Sheckler tattoo on his back. And once he got it, it was game on. And then um, for my first tattoo, it was Sheckler on the back, and it was four hours, a little over four hours. And 
wasn't as like excruciating as I thought it was going to be. And, you know, from that point, I just started getting more and getting more. And then I was like hooked, you know. <laughs> And correct me if I'm wrong, it was like the adrenaline rush you get Yeah, from? you know, I'd get injured and a couple of weeks would go by and I'm like jonesing for an adrenaline rush of like landing a trick or like trying a trick or falling on the ground. And before I get tattooed, I still get like a little nervous, you know, and it's like very similar to skating. So kind of just correlated that like if I'm hurt, I'm getting tattoos. It's the same. And I've been hurt a lot. So I'm almost filled up. <laughs> I and I was gonna say there was a period where like every two weeks. Oh yeah, you were getting it was either right. every two weeks or every week, and I would just go. I would go left side to right side because I, I need to be symmetrical with it, you know. So I'm like, all right, get the left calf done. Next week, get the right calf done. It's kind of just how I filled in. Do you have any favorites? Honestly, my Jesus Christ. At the start, it's probably my favorite. Love. Um. I love my back piece, just kind of represents San Clemente. So it's just kind of a representation of like my life at home and my life on the road permanently. Um, this elbow's so jacked from breaking it so many times that the bone- Oh, didn't you put an eyeball? Yeah, the bone's like, now the eyeball. So it kind of takes the, uh, takes the look of the elbow away. Any you regret? <laughs> no, man, cause it's like, it's like stories. It's stories, it's times that I can remember, like Las Vegas, like first day I showed up in Australia and I was jet lagged and I thought it'd be funny to get a jet lag tattoo. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, like tomorrow. Like I, I don't know why I got tomorrow, but it was like, I must've been thinking like I'll deal with it tomorrow. And you know, I like, I got fuck it on my shin because of, you know, a passing of, of, of a dear friend, you know? and. It was heavy. He had a life of like, F it, everything's all right. It's all gonna be okay. And so I put it on my shin. And if you go bald, you'll, uh, you said you'll get a skull? <laughs> yeah, that's the goal, man. It's like, uh, it's like 80% possibility for sure. Not anytime soon, you know? I wanna be the grandpa that has like, you know, the head fully tattooed. So you talked some about the injuries. Yeah. Uh, name all the injuries you've had. Oh, man. Um, For as many as you Yeah, can. let's see. It's, uh, I think, left, left elbow four or five times, right elbow four times, pins, um, screws in this elbow. I have done MCL on both knees. Um, obviously the most recent one was the, uh, ACL partial meniscus tear. I've done Liz Franck injury on my right foot. I've broke my left foot. Broke my left ankle, uh, right ankle twice. Couple concussions. And, um... My back, <laughs> yeah, L1. What's been the most painful? I would say this, uh, this ACL. Why? Why? Because when you come out of surgery, they got the knee like, they want you to go straight, get your legs straight, and uh, it doesn't want to do that. With the knee and the ACL, especially with the modern way they want to heal it now, they want it moving right away. A lot of surgeries you get, you know, 
you get a month in the cast before you have to actually start PT. I had surgery and four, five days later I was in physical therapy trying to move this thing. And uh, it's been brutal, been brutal. No pain pills, no nothing, just, you know, sober surgery. Well, and that's a conscious decision, right? Absolutely. No pain pills yeah. and yeah. No, and I've never been a pill guy right. either, but like, I just didn't need it. I yeah. didn't feel like I needed it, you know? I got the medication that they gave me during surgery. Yeah. And then, you know, the day after surgery, took one. So maybe two days after the surgery where it was like the most grueling. Yeah, I had one yeah. or two a day. And then that was it. You know, that was it. I didn't need it. Do the, the concussions concern you at all? Um, no. Okay. No, they don't. Uh, not at all. Uh, maybe if I got a few more, uh, it'd be concerning. But everything seems to be working. Uh, pain on a daily basis? Um, it depends, man. I, it's hard to define what's pain and what's just soreness from how much I train. You know, I work out four days a week and yeah. um, some weeks are sore than others. But uh, no, man, you know, no, I don't, I'm not putting any like toxins or anything into my body that would like hinder any type of healing. So I'm very well hydrated and, you know, I eat right and I sleep as, as well as I can talked about a lot of life, uh, have not talked about your dad uh, yeah. yet. How about the role he played in your life early on? Huge role, bro. That's my pops, you know? That's my guy. Um, he was the one at the contest, bro. He was the one in the garage, like, you know, like we, he was the one building ramps, like, along with my mom. Like, that's, this has been a whole family affair, you know? It's like, we almost got evicted from the neighborhood because the vert ramp was you know, 13 feet high and hanging over everybody's backyard. And so we cut that down and they've just been ride or die for skateboarding, for anything that we've been involved in. They support us to the nth degree. What led to the relationship with him becoming challenged? Mm, I mean, the divorce, the divorce for sure. It was like, and it wasn't only challenged on his side too. Like me and my mom weren't really getting along as, as well. And, and for a long time, I thought I caused the divorce. Um, there was like an incident that, that happened where I didn't clean my room, you know, it was heated and my mom and dad got into an argument and, you know, I was left on a trip soon after that and came home and dad was gone. What's the toughest part of the current dynamic with him? Um, right now, bro, I, right now I would say that we're good. I would say we're good. We address things that, you know. We address things that we needed to address. How do you think your parents' divorce impacted or has impacted what you look for in a partner? Oh, man, you know, I thought about that a lot. I thought about that a lot, and it, like, kind of turned me off of marriage. But then I realized it's like it doesn't have to be that way, you know? My situation doesn't have to be like that. You know, those are, those are two adults that made an ad adult decision to split up. It had nothing to do with me. It took me a long time to realize that. And for me, I look at, I look at marriage different now through, you know, through the eyes of the Bible. Sheckler married his girlfriend, Abigail, eight months after our sit-down interview. But during our chat, Sheckler detailed the boundaries they'd put in place while dating. Yeah, you know, I'm in a very happy, healthy, Christ-based relationship that I couldn't ask for anything else. The difference 
is it's like no premarital sex. It's we take we take the sin out of the relationship and leave it wholesome and leave it real and communicate, which allows us to grow into believers in Christ, but also allows us to look forward to something possibly super magical in the future. All right. So I apologize for the elementary question, but how tough is that? It's tough, bro. It's super tough. I never, never really went into, never tried to understand why people didn't, you know, have sex before they were married. It was never weird to me. It was just always like, oh, that's just kind of not like my, that's not my deal until it became my deal. And I'm like, oh, I get it because it's supposed to be special. It's not supposed to be something you just fling around and just can go do and have no consequences. It's supposed to be like something that's shared in a spiritual way. First time you earned six figures, you were how old? Um, first time I got a six figure, ooh. Um, bro, it must have been early on. First time I made a hundred grand, um, I don't know, 14, 15. Did your parents uh, stop being able to claim you as a dependent when you were like nine, I think? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think you learned about money going through all that? Or, you know, having the resource at that early an age and now reflecting on it? What I learned about money at a young age was that it was like, it, it was pretty much kind of a, a freedom, freedom ticket for me, you know? Like, if I wanted to go, you know, take my family out to dinner, I like, I, I could, you know? And like, a lot of the times on trips, I felt really bad that my brother wasn't with me and that Shane wasn't with me. And so I would try to, I would try to make up for it with, with gifts, you know? And, and he'd be stoked and it was cool. But even thinking right now, bro, like, Money didn't really have a grip on me until I was 18. It wasn't important to me until I was getting ready to buy a house, um, until I wanted to buy jewelry. It was all material things, you know? I wanted to have a Ferrari, so like the goal was to like get that by the time I was 18, you know? And so got that, that was a goal. Was I satisfied? No, it wasn't like, I kept thinking that all these things that I was buying were gonna give me this like sense of joy. And they did for a little bit, you know, but like, it was empty. It was very empty. And, you know, I've wasted, I've wasted over a million dollars for bottle service and, you know, tables at clubs and penthouse suites and, you know, flying private and whatever it may be, all, all these like material things that I look back on now and it's like, man, huh, kind of wish I would have saved that, you know, million dollars, you yeah. know, because then I could have maybe bought some real estate or like bought assets that like are actually creating revenue um, and not just, you know, pretty much burning, burning it. Um, or, you know, could have done more with that million, could have really put the million dollars just into the foundation and gone out and helped and, and actually been able to do more than what we're doing. Obviously, I, I talk about going back, but I wouldn't change anything that my life has been because it's sat me right here, right now, clear headed and motivated. Before you made it big, uh, what was the most creative way you went about saving money to get something special for yourself or someone else? Uh, we would set, I would set a goal. I would set a goal with my agent and with my mom and, 
you know, if I wanted a new car or a new watch or something like that, it would be, I'm going to win this contest. Or if I, at the end of this year, am the state championship or, or win the championship of this, um, then I'm going to, then I'm going to splurge. And so for me, it's always been goal setting. I've always been a goal setter. So, um, it wouldn't really be like walk outside and I'm going to go get a car today. You know, even though on the show it made it look like we just went out one day and bought an Escalade. It was like, no, that, that was planned. You know, we planned to do that, but the magic of television made it look like I just woke up and decided to go spend 70 grand on a car. Business today, uh, Sandlot Times. Yeah. Uh, tell me about how that came about. Sandlot Times is representative of my skate park, my friends, um, derived from the Sandlot, the movie, which is like one of, I get the chills, it's random. I love that movie because of the, the fellowship that these guys have, you know? They stick together, they ride together, they all show up at the same park and they just have fun. They lose track of time completely and they're just hanging out and playing. And as an adult, my skate park is the Sandlot. That's pretty much the new, you know, life of Ryan. Let's put it that way, you know, or Sheckler sessions that I used to do with Red Bull. But it's mine, you know. It's mine. We own the content. What's to say here about Palm Springs Wave Company? Um, yeah, uh, Palm Springs Surf Club. So new standstill wave wave pool that's coming in, and um, super excited to be a partner in it. You know, it's uh, it's pretty awesome to be able to go out to Palm Springs golf around and then show up at the wave pool and surf for four hours and just get barreled. I got to, I luckily got to ride the, uh, the test wave, the sample wave. And just from the sample wave, the ride on it hooked me, dude. And to think that it's going to be three times bigger, like wider pool, longer rides, yeah. bigger wave left and right, maybe even split peak. There's an air section. It's just like, it's a playground. It's actually a playground for surfing. There might be the desire at some point on your end in creating a chain of tattoo shops. It would be cool. Um, for me, it's like, I think that music and sports and tattoos kind of all go together these days, you know? And um, a goal of mine, you know, with, with one of the companies that I'm a part owner in, Ethica, um, you know, that's kind of a branch where we're going down right now is the music side, you know? And uh, I think with the studio that they've created and kind of the atmosphere that is going on <clears throat> with the brand, that a tattoo company or tattoo setup goes right in with it. And um, that's funny you know about that. <clears throat> It's interesting that you know about that. That's in, that's like really right at now at the beginning of even conversations of doing it. But yes, ideally, um, I've spent a lot of time at the uh, tattoo shop. I hadn't noticed. Yeah, a lot of time at the tattoo shop. I love obviously getting tattoos. I have to slow down a little bit. I don't have much room left. So it's, you know, it's a fun world. It's a painful world, but it's fun. Uh, um, how much credit do you give to your agent, Steve, for the, the success you've had uh, a lot. on the business end? Steve Astafin, bro, is like 
family. He absolutely is family to me. I remember our first meeting, he said, Ryan, if you promise me 10 years of hard work, I will make you a millionaire. And we'll get you to a point where you never have to work again. And I promised him. I said, yeah, absolutely. And that was like, that was 13 to 23. And those were the, some of the gnarliest, hardest working years of my absolute life. Um, so I want to talk to you about the foundation. Yeah. Uh, first, tell about Casey from Make-A-Wish. Yeah, bro, that's kind of where it started. That's where everything started. It's Casey. This girl is such a sweetheart, bro. And she wanted to hang out with me, dude. And I could not for the life of me figure out why. You know, could not figure out why. And I was like, okay, I'll grant this wish, obviously. Like, what an honor. She had cancer. Um, she was in remission. And I had to go to Texas to uh, go skate this uh, skate park called Cowtown. And uh, met her there. And I was super nervous to meet her, you know. And I asked her specifically, like, why, why did you want me? Like, why do you want me? And she's like, well, I've dealt with this cancer for most of my life. And all I've wanted to do was be a normal teenager. I just wanted to be normal. And I watch your show. And a lot of what I pick up is that, you know, you've just kind of wanted to be normal. I'm like, your circumstances, like literally life or death, mine is just like ego and kind of spoiled teenager, you know, like, man, right. gnarly. And um, it was crazy. That was the first time I really realized that like my, my influence has like been a positive for someone. I came home from that trip and I was like, we have to do something. We have to give back to, you know, and the first thing we did was, uh, a fundraiser for Children's Cancer Research Fund, CCRF, and uh, we ended up raising $240,000. Um, yeah, I was, I was hooked right away. I knew that that's what I needed to be doing. Um, and then, you know, from that, it's like, we're 13 years into Sheckler Foundation now. And you've raised a ton of money over the years. Yeah, we've, we've definitely raised over a million. I'm not sure if we've got up to two million yet, but we've helped one of my favorite group of people, the, the adaptive action sports athletes that like, you know, these guys, some of these guys are just the biggest inspirations to me ever because, you know, they got no legs. And they're skating with prosthetic legs on for six hours straight. No complaints in the world. You know, these kids that we got that are in the wheelchairs that like, can't move from the waist down, but they're going and they're dropping in on 10 foot quarter pipes. You know, some days I, I'll get on my board and I'm like, ah, oh, man, kind of take it for granted a little bit. Like, ah, oh, have a rough day. And then like, you know, we'll have some of the adaptive crew show up and they're in their wheelchairs and they're just dropping in. They're slamming, dude, just like falling and it like scares me and they're having the best time and they're so positive and like nothing can hold them back. And I'm like, man, what? What am I talking about having a bad day? Like, inspo. It's just straight inspiration working with these guys. How and cool is that? It's next level. It's absolutely next level. Um, it's the most gratifying part of my life. And then we got them into the X Games, you know? And it was like, boom, they got medals. Gold, silver, bronze. It was like, epic. We did a, 
a tour, a 10 stop tour, you know, where we're giving out $10,000 at, at a stop and we're bringing, you know, my skateboard members um, with us. And we're like going to all these cool spots and we're visiting the hospitals and like I'm, I'm being allowed to skate in the hospital, like in the rooms with these kids, you yeah. know, and um, there's just something about being of service, you know, being selfless and just allowing yourself to kind of submerge yourself into somebody else's life and have compassion and, and be able to bring just a little bit of joy. If that's, if that's all it takes, you know, we can, we can all do it. We can, we can all be capable of making somebody smile. Our time with Sheckler didn't stop there as he invited us to his private indoor skate park which doubles as the headquarters for the Sheckler Foundation. He dropped in on a ramp for the first time since his ACL surgery and talked about how good it feels to finally be back on a board. Check that out at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. We also have content on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Graham Bensinger, so make sure to check that out. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.